Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to the final week of the Supreme Court's term. It's right on time, and the court has delivered the last two cases we were waiting for. And, of course, there's the curious case of Justice Breyer at the end of the term. The curious case being, of course, that Justice Breyer did nothing at the end of the term, at least not yet. Uh, we have no retirement announcements. So uh, look forward to a whole nother news cycle next year. I know. I hope uh, Justice Breyer is able to uh, to get away and stay away from the uh, the push to have him retire <laughs> over the <laughs> Although, summer. you know, uh, I suppose it could still be the case that uh, he announces retirement sometime this summer. Well, I think at a minimum he should join Justice Thomas on a road trip in uh, Justice Thomas's RV. So, <laughs> there you go. Well, Zach, uh, we had some major opinions this week. The two big ones we were waiting for came out this morning. Tell us about Bronovich. Sure. Bronovich versus DNC. Uh, it was a 6-3 to three opinion by Justice Alito. It was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And the court upheld both of Arizona's election law provisions that had been challenged. The court said that neither Arizona's out-of-precinct policy, which requires that a ballot cast by someone on election day will not be counted if cast outside of that person's assigned precinct, nor Arizona's prohibition on vote harvesting, which provides that only an election official, a mail carrier, or a voter's family member, household member, or caregiver can collect and deliver someone's mail-in ballot. Uh, the court said neither of those violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and the court also held that this latter vote harvesting provision also did not violate the 15th Amendment, as had been alleged. But it's kind of a good news, bad news situation, GC. Uh, the good news is that, obviously, uh, the court, I think, reached the correct result in this case. But the bad news is that while the court upheld the challenge provisions, it declined to announce a test to govern all Voting Rights Act, VRA, Section 2 claims uh, that involve rules such as the ones at issue here, which specify time, place, or manner of provisions for casting ballots. Instead, the court identified five guideposts that it used in reaching its decision. The court said that it looked at and encouraged lower courts to look at the size of the burden imposed by a challenged rule, uh, to look at the degree to which a voting rule departed from what was standard when Section 2 was amended in 1982, uh, the size of any disparities in a rule's impact on members of different racial or ethnic groups. The court also said it considered and that lower courts should consider the opportunities provided by a state's entire system of voting when assessing the burden imposed by a challenge provision. And finally, the court said that it looked at the strength of the state's interest served by the challenged voting provisions. And it said here the state had a very significant interest in detecting and preventing voter fraud. Now, Zach, I got to tell you, this is one of the most inscrutable balancing tests I can remember coming from the court recently. 
No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, part of what makes this, I think from my perspective, a little disappointing is that the court had been urged to adopt a bright line test to help guide legislators when they're passing these new voting laws, to guide lower courts when they're being asked to review them. And it declined to do that here. And so I anticipate, uh, again, while this was a a good decision, uh, the right outcome in this case, I anticipate this won't be the uh, last we see of Section 2 voting right claims before uh, the court. Uh, But this leads to an interesting concurrence by Justice Gorsuch that was joined by Justice Thomas. Uh, And the reason this concurrence by Justice Gorsuch is interesting, he said that while he joined the court's opinion in full, he was writing separately to flag one thing it didn't decide. He said, quote, our cases have assumed without deciding that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 furnishes an implied cause of action under Section 2. But he said because no one raised the issue and because it wouldn't affect the court's subject matter jurisdiction, that the court didn't need to and was not addressing that issue in its opinion. This sort of thing makes me laugh, Zach, because it's only in the law that you could assume the answer to a predicate question and leave it for another day when it's a predicate question. Well, listen, you know, no party argued it, so I guess uh, (laughs) the courts uh, didn't want to take it up. Uh, But on the merits, GC, three justices did dissent. Justice Kagan wrote the dissent, and she was joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor. Now, Justice Kagan uh, broadly criticized the majority's decision, uh, and she said its interpretation of VRA Section 2 Uh, was misguided. She said that wherever it could, the majority gave it a cramped reading. And she said that the decision rested, quote, on a list of mostly made-up factors at odds with Section 2 itself. Uh, And so, of course, she and the other two dissenting justices would have struck down both of the challenge laws. Zach, as you know, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has filed suit against Georgia for its election laws, uh, at least one of which um, mirrors one of these from Arizona. What do you make of this case and Garland's suit in light of it? Yeah, I think the Department of Justice's lawsuit in Georgia is going to face some challenges uh, now, at least with respect to the voting provisions that are similar to the ones that the court addressed here. And so the Department of Justice uh, alleged that Georgia's uh, out-of-precinct policy, which is similar to Arizona's, was racially discriminatory. I certainly think that claim will face challenges in light of the Bronovich decision. And then Georgia also has an anti-vote trafficking provision as well. And so again, I think the Department of Justice will probably have to either withdraw those claims or go back to the drawing board on uh, what theory they're trying to use to, to advance those claims in light of today's decision. Well, that brings us next to Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta. This was a 6-3 decision written by the chief and joined in full by Barrett and Kavanaugh and in part by Justices Thomas Alito and Gorsuch. The court held that a California policy that forced nonprofits to disclose the names and addresses of their donors violated the First Amendment. The policy the court held was not narrowly tailored, that's the uh, legal term of art, to the state's purported interest in preventing fraud because the record revealed, and I quote, not a single concrete instance in which pre-investigation collection of that information did anything to advance the attorney general's investigative, regulatory, or enforcement efforts. 
The state's real interest, the court held, was in in collecting that information was ease of administration, not fraud prevention, and that justification is not sufficient to trump the First Amendment. The court did not decide on a standard of review in these kinds of cases. Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett would have used what's called exacting scrutiny, a level of review less than strict scrutiny, which is what Justice Thomas would have applied. And Justices Alito and Gorsuch wouldn't have picked a standard of review in this case because the outcome was uh, the same regardless. Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan, dissented because, in their view, California's policy did not burden the plaintiff's First Amendment rights, so the court shouldn't have found for the petitioners at all in the balancing of interests that goes on under First Amendment scrutiny. So the case is a win not only for one of the most diverse groups of left-right amici I've ever seen. You had, you know, AFPF uh, on the one hand, you had PETA uh, joining them, you had the NAACP, you had both pro-life and pro-choice groups, uh, all of them uh, opposed to California's policy. But this was also a significant win for a past guest of the show, Judge Sandra Ikuta. Uh, Judge Ikuta dissented in the Ninth Circuit below, which upheld California's policy. And this is the second time in as many weeks that the Supreme Court has vindicated her and adopted her positions in dissent uh, on appeal. So congratulations to Judge Ikuda. Well, next up, GC, was the case of Johnson v. Guzman Chavez. This was a 6-3 decision by Justice Alito where the court held that an illegal alien who was removed from the United States but was later caught after re-entering uh, again illegally are not entitled to a bond hearing if they seek relief from deportation based on a fear of persecution. There is a dispute about which statutory provision applied uh, to these types of cases, and the court resolved it in favor of the one that said they would not be entitled to a bond hearing. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, concurred in the judgment, but argued that Congress has divested the federal courts of jurisdiction over these kinds of immigration cases. Justice Breyer, joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, dissented, arguing that the different statutory provision applied to these aliens, and under that statutory provision, they would have been entitled to a bond hearing. That brings us to Minerva Surgical, one of the few 5-4 decisions of the term uh, in a patent case with a very interesting split among the justices. You had Justice Kagan writing the majority, joined by Roberts, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kavanaugh. And the court held that the patent law doctrine called assigner estoppel, which prohibits someone who assigns his patent to someone else from later challenging the validity of that patent – applies only when an assigner's claim of invalidity contradicts specific representations he made when assigning a patent. So, this is a complicated issue, but the facts of the case will help us to understand it. Here, we had an inventor who made a medical device, and he filed a patent for it, which he received, and then he assigned that patent to a company that he had created. He then sold that company to a company called Hologic and started a new company called Minerva Surgical. When he was at this new company, he created a new product, which was very similar to the original one, except that it had one key difference. Hologic, with the old patent, the original patent, petitioned the patent office successfully to amend the old patent to arguably cover the inventor's new device. Then it sued him for patent infringement. The inventor argued that Hologic's second patent, or amended patent, was invalid as to the second device, which he said it did not cover. 
So now we get to assigner estoppel. Holojic said, you created this original patent, then you assigned it to someone. Because you assigned it away, you can't challenge its validity. The court disagreed with Holojic. It said that assigner estoppel doesn't apply here because the patent that the inventor assigned did not cover his second device. It was Holojic's subsequent amendment of the patent that arguably achieved that result. So assigner estoppel doesn't apply. So now what happens is the parties will go back to the lower courts to fight over whether the amended patent does in fact cover the second device. And last up, we have the Penn East Pipeline case. This was another 5-4 decision, and this one was authored by Chief Justice Roberts and joined by Justices Breyer, Alito, Sotomayor, and Kavanaugh. The court held that the Natural Gas Act allows private companies authorized by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to use the government's eminent domain power to take land owned by state governments. The case boiled down to dispute about the history of eminent domain and state sovereign immunity. In the majority's view, federal law has long permitted private companies to use delegated eminent domain power, and the states consented to permit private condemnation lawsuits against themselves when they ratified the Constitution. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Thomas, dissented, noting that the 11th Amendment may bar federal courts from hearing these suits and saying that the court should have considered that issue. Justice Barrett, joined by Justices Thomas, Kagan, and Gorsuch, dissented, arguing that the Commerce Clause does not permit Congress to strip states of their sovereign immunity. This week, we are joined by Louisiana Solicitor General Elizabeth Murrell. Well, we are joined today by the first Solicitor General of Louisiana, Elizabeth Murrell, who was appointed by Attorney General Jeff Landry in 2016. Since then, she has argued four cases before the Supreme Court and is fresh off a recent victory in Edwards versus Vanoy. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations on uh, your victory in Edwards versus Vanoy. And I, it makes me wonder, at what point, you know, you, in in your career, did you ever imagine that you would be arguing and winning cases before the Supreme Court? So the answer to that is easy, never. <laughs> you know, I don't think I ever contemplated being where I am today, having argued four cases. Um, I don't think I really contemplated arguing one, much less four. So... I guess sometimes you just track along doing things you love and you find yourself in a job that you love and it happens to be a job that puts you up at the Supreme Court more than once. So tell me about your, you know, your, your path from law school through um, you know, getting to the Solicitor Generalship. At what point um, did, did you even think of a career in appellate practice? Well, I've always thought of a career in appellate practice since I started law school because I just loved opinion writing and I loved appellate work. I mean, I like the thoughtfulness of it. I like the, you know, kind of concentrated study of a record to think about what legal issues you can argue. I like the oral argument, um, the challenge of oral argument to be able to sort of concentrate your uh, argument and when you're face to face with the judges for a brief amount of time. I just love every aspect of that. So you clerked uh, both at a district court for Judge Frank Polozda, is that right? Polozola. Polozola. Mm -hmm. And for Louisiana First Circuit Judge uh, Melvin Shortis, right? Yep. Tell me about those two experiences and how they formed your interest in appellate work later on. So just two magnificent human beings. Um, 
Judge Palazzolo was one of the two federal district judges in uh, the middle district when I was in law school. And I got to know him when I was um, really, I got to know him my second year in law school. And then my third year, I was editor in chief of the Law Review. And I had already kind of made contact with him and touched and told him that I wanted to clerk for him. Um, So he, he hired me really he offered me the job before I even was selected as editor-in-chief of the Law Review, which was kind of nice. You know, it was like he believed in me before there was some objective <laughs> means of, of someone else indicating that they did too. Um, so that was nice. He was just a great, great man. He's deceased. Um, and, you know, one thing about clerking is that you just become part of the extended family of the judge that you work for. Um, I think that's that's really broadly true. And it gives you such a great experience. I'm such a big advocate for clerking. Um, Judge Shortis, and so that was in federal court, and then um, I was actually expecting to go clerk in the Fifth Circuit, um, but family issues intervened, and I ended up um, staying in Baton Rouge and uh, and starting a family. And, and so I went to work for Judge Shortis, who was a friend of mine. We were running partners. We had a big group of people who ran at the law school, and he was among those, those folks. And he had told me um, – he had asked me one day when we were going to a race, you know, why don't you come and work for me? And um, so when I – when my, my now husband and, and I decided to sort of stay in Baton Rouge because he was coming from Atlanta to go to law school, I um, – I said, hey, uh, were you serious? And he said, (laughs) yes. So I ended up working for him for three years. Okay. And that was great, too, because it gave me a chance to really concentrate on state appellate work. And and so I had done some crossover work in the Fifth Circuit when I worked for Judge Polozola, and and I had obviously done a lot of work in the district court level, but – but it was really great to spend a good bit of time just concentrating on state-level state, state level work. Okay. And after your clerkships, you uh, returned to your alma mater, LSU, mm-hmm. and you taught. I taught. I taught for – I think I taught – I'd have to go back and look at the exact dates. But I think I was teaching for 12 years Okay, um, with a little bit of break in the middle to have my third son. Um, so I took about a year off of teaching after my third son was born. And um, – and came back to LSU after that, and it was it was great. I taught legal writing and appellate advocacy. I coached uh, moot court teams, mm-hmm. which was also a lot of fun. It was good, great to travel with students who were um, had elected. You know, it's nice when students elect into a really competitive class or a project um, because they're kind of all in. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they've chosen to do this. Um, they're they're they really want to win. They want to do well. So they're they're just kind of a sponge. They soak up all the advice and information you can give them. So you obviously loved it because you did it for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Did you think at this point that you would uh, leave and go back to appellate work yourself, or did you just find this so fulfilling that you were sort of had decided to stay? Well, I did um, I did do some work appellate work on the side during that time. So I was still kind of practicing part time. And Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, um, not too long after that. So I set up a – working with the Bar Association, I set up a pro bono clinic out at one of the the areas where they had kind of moved a bunch of people that were – 
had been displaced out of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so they had these huge RV camps set up. And um, and they were people that had been displaced. They really didn't know the city because they weren't from – they didn't live there. And they had a lot of needs. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of legal needs. And they had to navigate the the – um, Road Home was the program that we had called to deliver money, basically, to help these people get out of their homes if they had flooded or get into new places um, or repair their homes. And so we just set up a pro bono clinic out there, and um, I ran that clinic for a year. Uh, during that time, I also started my LLM at Pepperdine in okay. alternative dispute resolution. And um, and I ended up doing a fellowship at the United States Supreme Court from 2007 to 2008. And so when I came back, that was when I was sort of reexamining whether I wanted to go back to teaching mm-hmm. or whether I wanted to go back into full-time practice. And um, and I ended up in the governor's office. Okay. So that kind of launched me back into really more active government practice. Gotcha. Tell me about that Supreme Court fellowship, because I've heard that these yeah. exist. I don't know what they do, so I'm really curious. Well, it's a great program. It's the Supreme Court Fellows Program. So I'll you know give a, give a plug for the program. When I did it... It was they were targeting more mid-career professionals. So, I mean, there were kind of a little older group of applicant. The applicant pool, I think, was a little older than they are now. Um, Now they really target people coming out of clerkships and people who are interested in teaching. So you you have some time. I think part of the application process now is that you need to have a research project. Um, And so you you talk about your research research project when you're interviewing you know, I had one at the time because I was finishing my thesis for my um, for my LLM. Okay, and um, I it was a great experience. That was another situation where they bring you kind of together with a lot of different other fellows. So we did um, some things that were shared events with the White House fellows, whole different kind of program, really really different type of program. Um, um, but we also, and then we did some shared events with the law clerks. Okay. And we we did a lot of um, events that we would where we would brief groups that were coming in through USAID or the court system in emerging democracies. So that was really really fun and interesting. I did a briefing once for the first eighty women judges that were appointed in Egypt. Wow! And they were just fascinated. We talked about how we in Louisiana elect judges. They thought that was crazy <laughs> and uh, so we talked about that and they're like they campaign they can raise money like, yes um we so we talked about the difference between um some of the systems where you have nominations and appointments for judges in other states but and and elected judges and and then there's they were appointed by the president mm. so it was different we just talked about kind of judicial independence and the the and, and the problem that you sometimes have, the lack of judicial independence when your job is subject to the um, discretion of the person who mm-hmm. appointed you, i.e. the president in the executive branch. Mm-hmm. So it's fun. I mean, there yeah. are all kinds of um, great conversations that I was able to have with people who were coming and studying our system from the outside. Mm-hmm. So when you went back to be deputy and then executive counsel to Governor Jindal, what did you do in that position? I describe that job as being a legal uh, fireman. Okay. (laughs) So you're just constantly uh, never know what's going to happen and when. You have to be ready. Uh, And it turned out that everything that I had done before going to the governor's office 
all kind of came together to make me very well suited to that work because I just had a very broad-based, long experience reading a lot of law, Mm -hmm. a lot of state law and a lot of federal law. And so, of course, I didn't know everything and nobody ever does, but I knew more than I thought I did. And when when these random questions would come up and I would need to be able to give an answer to the governor uh, that that. I was highly I needed to be highly confident that I was right because he was about to step in front of a microphone and talk to the press or give mm-hmm. an answer and um so there was you know it's a pretty pressure packed job right. in the sense that you need to have a high degree of confidence that your your answers are right and I think to do that you need to be able to do legal research um very very skillfully and quickly mm-hmm. And how about being executive counsel to the commissioner of the administration? What what is the commissioner of the administration? So the commissioner of administration in Louisiana is the governor's uh, appointed person. Who she's that's a person. It was a she in that case, but um, who who basically prepares the budget and operates the entire. She's kind of the, that's the central administration for state government. Okay. So there are some other groups area you know like higher ed and some of those groups run their own finance shops and procurement shops and everything. But the commissioner of administration at the division of administration is really the central hub for the business of the state. Okay. And the commissioner develops the state budget. So when I did that work, I referred to myself as the chief budget lawyer for the state. Okay. um, Because I did a lot of, I had a lot of issues that would come up related to budgeting. So tell me about what the day-to-day was like on that job. Very similar, very similar to being in the governor's office. Uh, a lot of the same types of questions still worked very closely with the governor's office because that is uh, part of the governor's office. Okay. So it just was a little more, I guess, focused on the procurement and budgeting side of things. It was a, it was a great job to learn a lot more about, I think, just the business functions of government and how they all come into you know, that centralized hub. So I, I thought it was a really good opportunity to learn a lot more nuanced details about how we budget and what kind of legal issues come up when we budget. I see. And then after that, you went uh, back to your LLM roots and you served as a professional mediator. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Uh, Well, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of time to set up that practice. I I had always been interested in doing more of that work. I did some arbitration and some mediation, and I'd had a, a, a couple of small special master appointments and smaller class actions. So I was hoping to build that practice um, about a year into uh, that, me setting up my private practice. Uh, Jeff Landry called me, and he was running for attorney general, and we had been talking on and off during that time. And uh, he talked to me about potentially joining his his team. And there were a couple of jobs that I was interested in and coming back if I was going to come back into state government. And they were some of the top jobs in the AG's office. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the SG office right, then. Right. It was just the civil division handled all the constitutional claims. So that was one of the jobs that I was really, really interested in because I knew that I just thought that would be probably the best work that I could that I would ever be able to do is to deal just exclusively basically deal with constitutional claims right so what was the transition like from uh you know an advisory role mediation back into civil litigation you know i've never i guess really analyzed it i mean it was just it's just been sort of this constant whirlwind of activity and um 
you know, going back into going back, going over to the AG's office was was great. I mean, I think that the that if the division is kind of the hub for business activity of the state, I mean, certainly the AG's office is the hub of all legal activity for the state, and so it, it afforded me the opportunity to be involved in all of the the kind of cutting issues that might be before the Louisiana Supreme Court or the federal courts. And um, so, I mean, I just it's always just been fun and interesting and challenging. And that's kind of what I look for in a job. What was it like creating this new office from nothing, basically? Well, there were other people I could talk to about that. Uh, There were a number of SGs. I think by the time that I, Jeff, you know, offered me the the job and the title of being the first SG, and and there was there were a couple of people that preceded me in the AG's office. So Kyle Duncan, for example, mm-hmm. was the chief appellate officer. He he did the work of the SG. He just didn't have this the that precise title. Um, so I think he had some vision for it when he okay. was in the job. Um, I came in and immediately was able. So Jeff appointed me to, as SG two months in um, to his first term. And I just started talking to a lot of other SGs, mm-hmm. and 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 Dan Schweitzer at NAG was also very helpful, and asking people how their shops were set up. At the time, I was still running the whole civil division, which was for us, I think, about sixty-eight lawyers, and I had no other exclusively SG lawyers. It was just okay. me. Um, eventually, we we were able to. S- set up a separate, wholly separate SG office, and now I have three assistant solicitor generals and two deputies and two administrative assistants, so we really have a whole operational SG side, um, and again, it kind of allows me to, to focus on the the biggest cases that we have, and, you know, that's like redistricting, and then some of these are right. cases that we file. Like we have two cases we filed against the administration on oil and gas issues. Tell me about your vision for the office and uh, your litigation strategy. You know, right now my vision is to expand the litigation shop. We have I have some some just amazing, super fantastic lawyers on the appellate side. Um, I need to hire more people who are on the just that I can focus on the litigation side. And I'd really like to put, you know, have kind of an equal amount of people that are focused on the appellate work and focused on the litigation side. And I think that would that would expand our office, probably double the size of the shop that I have now. Um, I, you know, mainly I just want us to keep doing what we're doing. One one of the the visions that I have for our office is to continue to build a good reputation with the Fifth Circuit and with the uh, the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So that that is one of the primary objectives that I have for our office and for, I mean, our whole office, for the AG's office and for the state, is, is to present a credible, professional face for every legal issue, whether we win or lose. We want to be able to do good briefing. We want those judges to look at the brief and say, that's Louisiana. They do good work. So looking back over your whole career from clerking to teaching to working in the executive office, the the state DOJ, if you could distill some advice that you would give to younger lawyers or law students who are, you know, looking ahead, what would that be? Well, one of the pieces of advice that I always give them is to clerk. You know, I think that... um, course doing well in law school giving it you know at giving it everything you can learning how to focusing on being a good writer i mean writing a significant piece of 
uh, research-oriented work is a really, really good experience. I think I think moot court competitions are also a very good experience, partly because they do put you through a significant writing process, a competitive writing process, but I don't think it's quite the same as, say, writing a law review article where mm-hmm. you're site-checking and you're, or you're site-checked. Um, and you work with a professor on uh, on a research piece. I, I think that's a really important experience for, and it's different from anything else they do mm-hmm. in coursework. And then clerking, I, I think clerking is is really really important, and a and it launches somebody into their career with with a view of having with having been afforded the view of seeing a lot of people practice. And how they practice, like how they write. I mean, once you clerk, you read a lot of briefs. So you see what's good and you see what's bad. And you see a lot of people at the podium. I mean, this last year is an exception. I mean, even on Zoom, you kind of can see, like, what's effective, what's not effective. And I think that is really, really good training for somebody who's going out into their career. Hmm. Because what you want them to do is model after the people who do the best work. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for joining us. There's one final question for you, and that is uh, if you could have a conversation with any justice, mm-hmm. living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Hmm. Well, that's always a hard question to answer off the cuff, and I, <laughs> I gravitate toward the living ones. Um, I might be interested in having a conversation conversation with Justice Gorsuch about the Ramos opinion. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe just the chief about the June medical opinion. <laughs> Second bite at the uh, oral argument. Yeah, apple, yeah. Right? Can we talk about this again? <laughs> Can we have one more discussion about this? Well, General Merle, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. All right, Zach, trivia time. Are you ready? Well, since this is the last time for the term, uh, I better be. So let's do it. <laughs> Zach, you always sound so excited for trivia. <laughs> uh, I'm going to invoke my Fifth Amendment right here, GC. <laughs> All right. Well, since this is the last uh, uh, episode of the term, I thought we would do some Supreme Court statistics courtesy of SCOTUS blog statistics. All right. Let's do it. All right. Which justice wrote the most majority opinions this term? My guess is going to be the chief, that the Chief Justice Roberts wrote the most majority opinions. You are half right, and the question was slightly a trick, because in fact it's a tie. Both Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas wrote seven majority opinions each. Interesting. I guess there's some advantages uh, over getting to assign the opinions. Correct, correct. We might call this term a tale of two chiefs. Uh, some would say that. Yes, they would. <laughs> You're so kind, Dak. And I think uh, I think Justice Thomas might say, thank you for the promotion, <laughs> as he did at one of the arguments uh, this that's term. That's right. That's right. All right, Zach, next up, what percentage of this term's cases were unanimous? So I remember looking at this statistic from several terms ago, and I was surprised uh, at how many cases were, in fact, unanimous. Uh, My guess for this term would be that a little less than half of the cases, probably, about half or a little less, were probably unanimous. 
You are exactly right. It's 44% of cases were unanimous. And if you uh, expand that out to start looking at uh, eight ones and seven two decisions, uh, we're well into the 60% range. You know, that number surprised me. And I think uh, a lot of folks don't realize uh, how high that percentage actually is, especially yes. given, given the press coverage. Right. And that that's the interesting thing. Uh, despite the press coverage, which would try to convince you that the Supreme Court acts in a purely partisan manner, this is actually a consistent trend over time. Uh, unanimous opinions are always the plurality and usually by a significant margin. Next up, Zach, which other justice did new justice Amy Coney Barrett most often agree with? Ooh, this is a tough one, GC. Well, I'm thinking back to several of the cases that were released recently, uh, specifically Fulton. I know there was a separate concurrence with uh, Justice Barrett and Kavanaugh in that case. Uh, And then I've also seen some uh, blogs over on the Volokh conspiracy, kind of dissecting the different wings of the court uh, and the different lineups. Uh, I would bet either Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Kavanaugh would be my guesses. You're right on the second. It is Brett Kavanaugh. They agreed with each other about 94% of the time. Wow. With whom did she most often disagree? Well, the obvious guesses are Breyer and uh, Sotomayor. So I will say one of, <laughs> one of those justices. You're right on the second. Again, it is Justice Sotomayor. <laughs> they agreed about 65% of the time. So what you're saying, GC, if I list all nine of the justices, one of you them will, will have to right. be the right answer. Okay. <laughs> Of all nine of them, which two justices had the highest rate of disagreement? I'll go Sotomayor again, and I'll say she most often disagreed uh, with either Justice Alito or Justice Thomas. All right, I'm going to make you pick one this time. Alito. Well done, Zach. You did it. That that is correct. (laughs) But in a good reminder of just how agreeable the court actually is, Justices Sotomayor and Alito actually still agreed with each other a comfortable majority of the time, 57%. Finally, Zach, which circuit court of appeals had the most cases taken up by the court? Well, I think the Ninth Circuit is an evergreen answer uh, to that question. (laughs) You're right. It was the Ninth Circuit. It wasn't even close at 16 cases, more than twice as many as any other circuit. And I won't even bother asking you which circuit was the most reversed because I don't enjoy repeating myself. And there were even a couple of uh, posthumous reversals in there, if I remember correctly. That's correct. That's a whole bunch of drama for another day. Fair enough. Well, everyone, with the court now out for their summer recess, we too will be going on a hiatus until they return in the fall. Until then, have a wonderful summer and keep a lookout for Justice Thomas if you go on any road trips across the country. And again, thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.